Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. The singer Annie Lennox praised the Book of Forgiving for its groundbreaking insights as to how we resolve our lifelong burdens. Impo Tutu Van Firth, who co-authored the book with her father, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, is no stranger to heavy loads. Her father was a leading opponent of apartheid in South Africa, and she herself was forced to relinquish the Anglican priesthood over her same-sex marriage. Tutu Van Furt has also co-authored a biography of her father, Tutu, and the book Made for Goodness and Why This Makes All the Difference. She discusses her life and the place of forgiveness with Marianne Elliott. We hope you enjoy this session. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi nui ki a koutou, ki te atoa, tēnā koe. Ki a papatuanuku, tēnā koe. Ki te whare, tēnā koe. Ki te hunga mate, ki te hunga ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, tēnā koe impou, nā mihi nui ki a koe. Welcome to all of you and welcome Empo. My name is Mary Ann and it is my great delight and honour to be here today in conversation with Empo Tutu Van Firth. Just a few housekeeping matters before we start. If you could please uh, just make one final check that if you have your mobile, mobile phone with you that it is either switched to silent or turned off. And here at the Auckland uh, Writers' Festival, we do encourage you to share your experiences at the festival through social media, but if you do want to do that, just do so mindfully of the people around you. We would like to um, particularly thank and acknowledge platinum patrons of the festival, Francis and Bill Bell, for their support for Impo's visit to New Zealand. The format for our time together this morning is that I will be in conversation with Empo and we will take um, some time at the end, about the last 15 minutes, to hear and um, for Empo to respond to questions from you. So if you have questions, um, please save them for then. Empo Tutu von Firth is an Episcopalian priest. She is the executive director of the Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation and she is the author, together with her father, of Made for Goodness, and most recently, The Book of Forgiving. She also co-authored with journalist Alistair Sparks, Tutu, The Authorised Portrait, for which she conducted over 40 interviews with her father's friends, family, colleagues, comrades, and critics. It is indeed a great privilege and a pleasure to be here with you today, Empo. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you about this process of co-writing with your father. I'm, I'm interested in what your process was and how um, you worked together with your father to agree on what was in the book and what wasn't, and in whose voice it would be written. <laughs> well, um, initially the idea was that he would do all of the thinking and I would do the writing. <laughs> um, but our process was, um, on, on this particular book, my dad was doing a fair amount of traveling while we were writing, um, and so I got to follow him around. Um, and we would have long conversations that I would then transcribe and, and 
um, formulate into what, what became the shape of this book. Um, fortunately, both that I'd had the experience of writing with him before and it made for goodness and made for goodness, I had uh, a week with him where we were holed up having a conversation, um, you know, sort of every each morning having a long conversation about what it was that we wanted to have in, in the book, um, collecting stories that we wanted to share in the book. And the experience was almost like having a personal retreat with, with my dad because then I, I got to probe his mind. We um, got to be in conversation and um, it was, it, it's, it's actually, he's, he's really lovely to work with. Um, my dad, uh, except that he's an English teacher, um, at, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he goes, no, you can't say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it was really lovely to, to have the opportunity to probe his thinking, um, but also to have the, the fun of um, pushing him a little bit and, you know, just watching his, his willingness to, to shift and to move. Plus, the nice thing about getting to do all of the writing is that I get to put words into his mouth. So it's <laughs> payback. <laughs> there are very, some very personal uh, stories in this book, um, including you know, some reflections from your father on, for example, his relationship with his father. Did you learn anything new about your father through the process of writing this book? Um, I did. I, um, I, I know that I didn't know before writing, although he, he, he is quite open about it, but um, the, the real struggle that he had in his relationship with his father. And we talked about it as well in the book of um, in, in Made for Goodness but uh, he, he talked about it in a bit more, uh, in a bit more depth uh, with, with this book um, and just the real struggle and what the, the, the struggle was for him. Um, and I think that, that as much as, as, he, as he struggled to, to forgive his father, he also struggled to forgive himself. Uh, for, yeah, for, for not, his, his father was, could be quite violent. Um, and I think part of the, the struggle for him was to forgive himself, his six-year-old self, for not being big enough or strong enough to stand up to his father and protect his mom, yeah. I mean, for me, this was so much of the power of, of the Book of Forgiving was that you were weaving together these very personal experiences of harm um, and the work that we can do if we choose. Um, and, and it is a very practical book with very sort of clear steps that we, you know, that we can follow towards, you know, the, the freedom of forgiveness. And it weaves that together, though, with these um, larger societal um, processes mm -hmm. and the reflection of, of what happened in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And one of the 
places in the book where those two um, levels really spoke to me was where in the in the chapter which is talking about the first step in the fourfold pathway of forgiveness, which is the process of telling the story. And um, you reference the work of Marshall Duke and the research that they've done on resilience in children. And what they found, which really struck me, was that knowing uh, our family stories was the biggest single predictor of children's health and happiness. Knowing the stories, even if those were stories of trauma, um, or that the stories relayed trauma, when the children knew those stories and, and, so, and those stories were being told in the family, that was the predictor of their future health and happiness. And I was, I was interested in how does that play out at a societal level um, in terms of our ability to have a healthy and resilient future? Um, did, you, did you see that the truth and reconciliation process was part of building that future resilience uh, at a societal level? I think that it was. Um, I, I, you know, sort of, I, I hadn't um, thought about it in quite that way until, until you said it, but when you look at societies across the world where um, our, where, where, the stories and the history are sort of like, okay, well, we're done with that and let's brush it under the carpet and uh, we, we really don't want to tell this part of the story because it is so um, incredibly painful. Um, that, that those societies keep repeating the cycle of hurt and harm um, and trauma and grief in so many ways. Um, I think maybe m most readily you know, kind of witness the US, the US of, you know, what is it that we haven't, whatever it is that we haven't yet spoken about and whatever it is that we haven't yet fully addressed keeps coming up in, in different ways. Um, and then you know, in, in South Africa as, as challenging as it was to, to surface the stories of, of, the, of, of the days of apartheid. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so right up until you know, 2010 would probably be the high point, but right up until 2010, the spirit in the, in the country was one of you know, profound hope, um, a, a deep sense of, you know, that things can change, things can be different. We are a single country with a, a more or less unified vision of, of what we are going to become. And I notice now, um, as, the, as the years go by, um, that we're less and less willing to talk about the apartheid years and, and the time since then in any kind of um, open and uh, you know, sort of a, a good, uh, uh, in any kind of conversation of mutual engagement and in conversation of mutuality. And that um, as we, uh, as we, 
as, as the public square, as, a, as our civic discourse becomes less and less civil, um, and you know, sort of less and, and less willingness to hear those who are other for us. Um, that that the the um, the resilience of the uh, society as a whole just really seems to diminish. So yeah, thank you. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll borrow that thought. <laughs> Well, I, th I think it struck me because it felt familiar mm. to our experience here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, and what struck me as you were speaking is that in the description in the Book of Forgiving of the, the phase of telling the story, mm. you make the point that it's an iterative mm. and ongoing process, that the stories of the harm that has been done to us mm. um, don't get told once and it's done. Mm. And that what I was reflecting as you were speaking of this phase, perhaps in South African life, where people maybe want that work to have been done yes. and over, um, I was reflecting on you know something similar perhaps to that here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where uh, I, I observe a desire amongst some people in this country to say, well, the stories of our colonial past and the trauma mm. and the oppression and the violence and the harm of that, um, they've been told mm. and that should be done now. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, what I'm, it's, it doesn't mm. work that way, no. obviously, particularly. One of the questions I had was, um, to what extent does that process need to be shared and public? Because uh, some of the storytelling in our, um, in our context in New Zealand has been done through a tribunal process which wasn't, didn't strike me as being as public and as shared as what the Reconciliation Commission process was and I was interested in um, what happens if uh, people who have, you know, uh, who have been harmed in large scale ways as, you know, indigenous people of New Zealand had been through our colonial process, are asked to tell their stories firstly in private and then to be done with it. And, and what have you learned in South Africa about that? Oh, I think the, um, as imperfect as was the TRC process and as unfinished as it was, um, because it, it, it was described even at the outset as um, the beginning of a process, not, you know, sort of it wasn't supposed to be a package and were done and dusted. Um, but that during the TRC, um, there were public hearings. There were, there were also opportunities for people to tell the story in private and to retell the story and retell the story um, in private, but, but there were public hearings which were um, in a way representative hearings. They weren't everybody's story, but they were a, a sampling of stories. But the hearings had wall-to-wall -wall covering across the country. So um, the, the 
uh, all of the news media outlets did a summary of the hearings at the end of the day. Um, they were broadcast live um, on the radio and on TV. Um, and it was, uh, and then there were write-ups in the newspapers and various bits of write-ups in most of the news magazines. Um, and, and so the experience was in a way you couldn't run away from, from hearing something about what was going on um, in the TRC and thus you couldn't run away from the shared history. And um, what that did for us was that it did give us a common history because prior to that, each racial group in South Africa had their own version of what South African history was and that, that this TRC process gave us a common history of the apartheid years. This is, you know, sort of the experience was um, multi-layered and that, that each racial group did have a different experience of apartheid, but apartheid was, was not like this, but it was like this. Um, and, and that was something that was incredibly valuable to, to us um, as a society. Um, and it, it, it was, um, as, as one person who'd been blinded um, in, uh, uh, as a victim of torture, um, had been had been tortured and had his eyes gouged out, um, and he he was able to tell his story in a in a public hearing, and at the end of the hearing he said, um, I feel like I've had my I've recovered my sight, um, and it's it was yeah he hadn't you know he couldn't he still couldn't see but. It, it really was an experience of being heard into healing. I have so many directions I want to go with this. It's so rich and, and so relevant to our life here in New Zealand. One question that comes up for me is, where do you think the, this impulse comes from to want it to be done? So to want the process of storytelling, of um, forgiveness, of healing, of recovering, of renewing, to be done once and for all, and when the, the, the sort of resistance against the reality that this will be iterative and, and new elements of the story will emerge and we will have to continue to revisit it. What do you think that impulse comes from to want it to be done? Um, oh, because we, yeah, we all want to be the good, the good guy in, in the story, um, when the reality of our human experience is that, yeah, sometimes we're, we're on the right side, sometimes we're on the wrong side, and sometimes we're kind of straddling. Um, and it is acutely uncomfortable um, to, to recognize that uh, not a one of us comes through life, A, absolutely clean, um, and B, that not a one of us is actually self-made, um, that, that, that each of us carries with us 
um, the, the, the stories of our forebears, um, that, that each of us is, um, is gifted uh, by, by our society in various ways. You know, I, I, I remember in, um, in, in college, uh, I, I went to university in the US, and there was a significant group of, of black South Africans at, at the university I attended. And we used to greet each other. Hi, how are you? Oh yeah, I'm black and oppressed. Uh, <laughs> um, we, <laughs> okay, but the you know sort of the the one the one liner was kind of telling um, that you know that I'm I'm very willing to claim that identity, um, and I'm not willing to claim the privilege identity um, that, well, yes, uh, I'm black, yeah, uh, and in as much as I'm black and as much as I'm woman and as much as I'm married to woman, the, you know, in all of those ways, um, I, I'm, I'm on the uh, target side of oppression, uh, but I'm also an educated English-speaking woman who owns a home and a car and a blah, 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 but I never, you know, when, if you ask me my one-liners, my one-liners aren't that I'm actually a privileged woman. Um, my my one-liners are always to, to claim the, the places where life is so hard for me. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> 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 because um, in one sense, that's clearly true, that it's more comfortable, for, in some ways it's more comfortable to claim the spaces in which we are on the receiving side of oppression. But the other thing that I um, noticed in the book was that we can also, uh, if we believe that we need forgiveness, and at some point in our life surely all of us, will be in the position Most of days. believing that we need <laughs> forgiveness. That it can also be quite tempting to get stuck in that place. Um, mm. And that the sort of experience of guilt mm. uh, or shame it's can so also seductive. be very sticky and yeah, seductive. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I, what I really enjoyed um, is uh, my dad saying uh, there's a, there is a kind of arrogance to the guilt, um, and especially for a Christian, there's an incredible kind of arrogance to the guilt because it's, you know, he says, um, you know, we ask God for forgiveness, and then uh, as Christians, we accept that God forgives us, except that we don't. <laughs> You know, he's like, well, you know, God, God, forgive me. Um, how can you forgive me? You know, you can't possibly know how terrible the thing is that I've done if you can forgive me. I'm, you know, I'm completely unforgivable and you can't possibly know, even though you're all knowing, you can't, possi you can't possibly know. I mean, it, um, and that, that, that the, the stuckness, is also, you know, sort of, is, is also kind of a lack of generosity. Um, 
and you, we, as Christians, we pray, forgive us as we forgive others, um, but we're not terribly good at that either. Um, and <laughs> yeah, um, but we 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 also pray to be able to love um, to love others as we love ourselves. And yeah, you know, that's sometimes I think, uh, ooh, maybe I ought to pray to be able to love others. A, considerable amount more than I'm able <laughs> to love myself otherwise, yeah. It's not very, yeah, it's not very it's loving. It's not very generous. <laughs> um, I was thinking about that in the, in, in the part of um, the Book of Forgiving where your father is talking about needing to forgive himself mm. for these, uh, you know, this guilt that he carries. And that's a place where we get stuck in not being able to forgive ourselves. Um, is, is it partly a not wanting to let ourselves off the hook, and perhaps this misunderstanding, well, what I think is presented in your book as being a misunderstanding, mm -hmm. that forgiveness means um, no holding to account, that if we forgive ourselves, we don't hold ourselves to account for our behavior or for, you know, for, for, for restoring mm -hmm. what we might have what we might need to restore, and I'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit about how those two things can coexist. Okay, well, let, let, so let, let me just do the, what, what, what we describe that fourfold path mm -hmm. as being, and um, we describe the path as being first that you tell the story, so what, what happened, um, you name the hurt, so how, how did it land in you, how did you experience it, what is the, um, what is the name of that pain that you're, you're living with? Um, and then, and then to, to offer forgiveness, and then to, um, to reconcile or release the, the relationship. Um, and, and that reconciliation really means um, creating a new thing. Um, it's a new relationship, it's a different relationship than the one that, uh, that existed in the past. Um, and reconciliation requires some form of atonement that you, 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 know, you don't get to just you know, sort of move on. Um, but reconciliation says uh, the, the, the relationship that, that we had didn't work. This, the, you know, there was some way in which it wasn't whole and healthy and beautiful, and what we are aiming to create is something that is whole and healthy and beautiful. And, and that requires you know, sowing new seed in that ground. It makes me think of... Um the fact that in New Zealand, as um, I was at a, a panel a week or so ago with um, a, a judge here in New Zealand, Judge Carolyn Henwood, and she was commenting on our incarceration rates, and she said, we really love to lock people up in New Zealand. 
We really love locking people up. Right from the beginning of our colonial history, we've loved locking people up, and particularly as a country, we like locking up Māori people. Um, and so we do have very high rates of incarceration in New Zealand, and we have uh, this sort of deeply um, held attachment to a very punitive and retributive sort of process of justice. Um, and I was struck when when we were speaking yesterday morning and you said, how often do we stop and ask somebody who's been harmed, what would actually make this better for you? What would actually help? What would make this better? And I sat there and thought, but how do we know what would make it better if all we see is retribution and we're told that's what makes it better? So how do you introduce into sort of a social consciousness that there are other, perhaps profoundly more healing pathways to make things better. Well, it, yeah, it, it's interesting um, because that the, this system of retributive justice um, takes as the injured party the state. So it's always the state versus, or the, um, the crown versus, or, you know, and, and so the, act, the, the, the person, the, the person who was victimized is kind of taken out of the equation and is now you know, really irrelevant to the process. Um, and what, uh, restorative justice model says is that actually the person who you harmed isn't, there was a person who was harmed. It's not just the state, it's there's a real human person who was harmed in this process. Um, and a, a, um, a restorative process actually takes you through that path and, and part of the restoration is you're gonna to have to sit here and hear how what you did to me affected me. And part of that, um, the hearing into healing is in, 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 in telling and retelling the story, um, you m m are more likely to come to that place of being able to say, you know, what, what feels to me um, like uh, something that would be healing would be, and whatever, what, whatever that is, that, that is um, indeed a more healing journey. Um, in, in, South Africa in the wake of the TRC. Um, they, we also introduced some restorative justice models into, the, um, into our judicial system. Um, and so uh, people who had, you know, sort of been through the retributive process and very often were in prison were, were or if the, if the victim wanted, 
um, and the, uh, the, the perpetrator also wanted to, that they could then enter into a restorative process as well. And in, um, the, the, it didn't necessarily mean that the, um, the judicial process would be thwarted. So there was no guarantee at the outset that, that, that it would make any difference to your prison time. It was just that you wanted to engage in this process with the person who you had harmed. And it was, um, for some people, it did make a difference. And, and, it, and for some people, it, it did uh, make a difference in their sentence, but not for all. Um, and one in particular who was serving a life prison term for a bombing um, in, in Worcester, in, in, uh, in the Northern Cape. Um, he, he, he was imprisoned with a, a, a man who the South African newspapers had named Prime Evil because of the uh, torture and the heinous crimes that he had committed during the apartheid years. And the, uh, the prime evil, the so-called prime evil, said to his cellmate, let me tell you, if you can, you want to ask forgiveness from the people who you hurt, because otherwise you are going to spend the rest of your life in two prisons. Uh, the one is these four walls, but the other is the prison of your mind. And he actually did engage with a process with the, with the people of this town. Um, and ultimately, he, he was in Pretoria Central Prison, and ultimately, the, the, it, it became a process not only for him and the people who he had harmed directly, but but for the people who he had harmed in the whole town, um, actually engaged in uh, furthering of the, of the TRC process that, that they have undertaken for themselves as a community. And so he actually you know, sort of really gave a gift to that community that he had so viciously harmed. He's still in prison, but there's, there is on the other side a, a healing as well. And in some cases, um, the, you know, there is a form of this process when you have a perpetrator who is, um, who wants to be part of the process, who is, you know, genuinely remorseful for the harm that they've caused and is ready to show up for this process. But what you also make clear with these four steps is that that's not a prerequisite mm -hmm. for going through the journey yourself mm -hmm. and liberating yourself through the process of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, is it, um, is that, uh, does that present particular challenges? And what are, the, what are the things that you've found support people, whether it's relationships or um, things that we, those of us, you know, might be able to provide around people who need to walk the path of forgiveness without the person who harmed them being willing to be part of that? Yeah, it, it, the, so what, 
what, what we say is that um, the inability to forgive keeps you chained to the person who harmed you. And that means that they get to continue inflicting hurt on you over and over again. And um, that, that, that you as the person who can offer forgiveness um, is actually the one who holds the key um, to, you know, to free yourself from, from that toxic relationship. Um, and that the, the process is the same regardless of whether the person who harmed you is, is, is there with you in the process or not. Um, you, you don't need their physical presence and, and very often um, it, it can happen that the, the other person is, is, is not even alive to, to engage with you. Um, but writing, um, finding someone to speak with and, and walk the path with um, can all be helpful ways of, of moving forward. And, um, we we wrote the book really as a kind of as a user's manual, um, so so we have um, exercises and meditations and prayers and poems and um, and we invite you to um, to pack a toolkit for yourself at the beginning of the book. We um, suggest some tools that you might find useful for the journey. Yeah, it's a very practical book. I think I've, I've read books on forgiveness previously that were either theological or philosophical, but this really is a book that walks you through the process and takes you through the steps, which I think is a real gift to those of us who need it. Um, I did want to touch on um, Made for Goodness, um, partly because it's a book that speaks to me personally very profoundly and one of the messages that really particularly spoke to me and made for goodness is this compulsion that I think has been a you know, driving force for big sections of my life which is to do good um, in order to be worthy or to do good in order to sort of earn your place in the world and um, the way that I've read you express that is that um, there's a space which is a very significant space between uh, I am doing this to be loved versus I am doing this in response to love. And um, I, I, I wanted to know if you had any stories that would illustrate or um, how you have learned that in your own life. Oh. That makes me sound so evolved. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's an iterative process. <laughs> yeah, um, and there, there are there are moments when um, it comes really easily. And there are times when it's a real struggle to um, to to uh, 
the, the terminology is probably not yummy, but anyway, it's like to, it, there's a flow um, that, that when, you're, when you're in love, um, and actually that's, that's, that's the really, that's the easiest, is you know, when you're in love and um, everything that you do for your beloved is, is just the, the easiest thing. Oh, dirty socks, oh yes! <laughs> um, and then there are times when dirty socks are just dirty socks. Um, and but but it you know that that's the difference. I'm you know uh, I'm I'm not doing it with an expectation of a, a reward. Um, I'm doing it because it just delights me to to delight the person who I love. Um, I mean, I think, you know, as a, as a parent, um, I, I remember I, I had w one, of, one of my children, who shall remain nameless, was, uh, had her moments as the baby from hell. Um, but, you know, and, and you know, just the, the screaming in the middle of the night, and I was like, oh my goodness, you know, with, you know, sort of, the night runs into day, runs into night. It's like a permanent feeling of jet lag, um, and uh, and yet you'll still, you know, get up in the middle of the night and comfort and cuddle and nurse and change and love and love and love and love and not because the, you know this baby. Or the only thing that this baby is going to do is kind of coo and go. <laughs> you know, and then that's like, oh yes, everything is all worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, so. So it's translating that into the rest of the world. And it's translating that into the rest of the world, yes. Which is an iterative process. <laughs> Some moments much, much easier than others. Um, we have just a few minutes before I want to open up for questions. Um, I was um, interested to read that when you were a child, you didn't want to be a priest. And I wondered if that Whoever was true. Whoever wants to be a priest? <laughs> well, some people look at their father and say, that's what I want to do. When did you change your mind? Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I think there was a point at which I realized that I had invested a lot of energy in not being a priest. So I, you know, I, I knew all of the reasons why I didn't want to be a priest. I didn't know all the reasons why I didn't want to be a marine biologist. But, you know, it was like, okay, so there's a lot of energy here. And if there's a lot of energy here, maybe it's worth taking a look at it. So. You have to work that hard yeah. not to do something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, for your presence, for your wisdom, and for your generosity. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.